Tokyo Game Life, a Tokyo-based video game podcast focusing on Nintendo and gaming culture in Japan's capital. Your host Mono here to bring you a slice of gaming life from Tokyo. The biggest piece of Tokyo-related news is that it's insanely hot. So stay inside with air conditioning and chill with a book, preferably one about video games. And this episode's feature segment is all about video game books. I'm joined by Dean from the Video Game Library Project to chat about video game guides, magazines, literature, art books, and literally everything in between. In the games, I'm going to highlight a few smaller Japanese titles, Super UFO Fighter and Monkey Barrels. Both have very strong Nintendo vibes, so even if you've never heard of these games, they might be up your alley. And as always, I'll close with the news. Let's get right into the feature on video game books with Dean of the Video Game Library Project. Tokyo Game Life only on the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. If you're into gaming, there's more than enough to collect. Retro titles, plushies, translucent controllers, the list goes on. But today we are going to focus on one person's amazing collection and dive into the unique world of video game books. So guest, please introduce yourself. Hey, thanks for having me on. My name is Dean. I run the Video Game Library. It's a online database of all of the video game literature that's been published over the years in over 20 languages, sort of a global repository. I've been collecting since I was a kid, uh, video game memorabilia, but more recently got into books and that sort of spawned off into, into this little project that's picked up some traction and it's been my passion for the past year. Thanks for joining me. I got to start with the obvious question. Why video game books? What made you want to start the Video Game Library Project? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I never wanted to be a librarian when I was a kid, right? I hated books. <laughs> I, I didn't like the concept of books. Mm. I didn't like reading books in in school. I, I cheated my way as much as I could through the, the English class, reading the, the different novels. I, I just couldn't get through them. I, I had a really hard time in school. And it wasn't until sort of my mid-20s that I started to get into reading. And more recently, really with the the advent of, of COVID, I found myself at home, working from home, a lot more time to just sit down and read a book. And, and through the years of collecting memorabilia, a lot of that had been books, whether it's fictional books or biographies on different video game creators or video game companies. So really started to, to sit down and, and read through those. And prior to that, naively, I felt that anything you could find in a book has got to be online, right? Like it's hmm. the digital age, right? Everything's online. But I had read a book from MJ Gallagher. It's called Norse Myths that inspired Final Fantasy VII. I'm a huge Final Fantasy VII fan. Hmm. Spent a lot of time on forums growing up. Since right. 1997, I've been diving into every piece of Final Fantasy VII fiction I could I could find. And this was the first time I could read sort of end-to-end a perspective that I had no previous experience with. The way MJ wrote the book and and sort of drew the connections between Final Fantasy VII and Norse mythology was just really unique, really fascinating, and it really opened my eyes to there's a lot of concepts and perspectives in, in written literature that isn't online. Hmm. So I said, well, let's... Let's look up what, what other books are out there. So I, I picked a game, The Last Guardian, which is a, a game that came out several years ago. It has a, a pretty interesting development story. 
and I typed into Google the last Guardian books. And the only thing that came up was a, a Warcraft book and a book uh, Artemis Fowl book. Mm. And so I tried a couple different permutations of, of that search and, and nothing. But what I found after further digging is that there's, there's a book called Of Shadows and Beasts from, from Daniel Matas about Team Eco's journey around that. There's a, a book called The Works of Humitu Iweta from, from Damien McCary. There's, there's a book called The Worst Year in History of Video Games 2016 that has a bunch of articles written about The Last Guardian. There's so many books out there about this one game that is, it's just so hard to find. Hmm. So I said, well, this, this absence of a centralized repository where I could find books about my favorite games or favorite creators, it's just, to me, it was glaring. And I thought, well, maybe there's others out there who are either video game historians or academics or for whatever reason, wanting to learn a little bit more about a game they love, a universe they love, a creator they love, a, a company they're interested in. And, and this resource might be a good tool for them in, in that search. So that's what really kicked it off. It was March of, of last year. Do you have a guesstimate on how many Final Fantasy VII related books are in your collection? In my collection, probably about 30 different books. Oh, wow. Yeah. And a lot of that is is Japanese, the different dismantled or the Ultimania books. Mm. But there's some fiction books that are, are sort of tie-ins to the games. There's a, a lot of game studies books. There's some oral history books. Yeah, just a, a lot has been released uh, over the years. And it's, again, it's hard to find just a central repository where you can just type in Final Fantasy VII books and get a good list of everything that's out there. When I think of video game books, I mostly think of strategy guides and maybe art books. What am I missing? What are other type of video game books that fly under the radar for a lot of people? Yeah, I think aside from the obvious uh, fiction or books written within the video game universes themselves, there's a huge sort of subgenre of game studies books. And that's really any field of academia, any field of study. If it has an intersect with video games, there's probably a book about it. Game studies is it's gaining a lot of traction, um, especially in the educational sector and in universities and, and schools. And when you're looking at an intersect between, say, mental health and video games, or video games and education, or video games and architecture, video games and stand-up comedy, there are books written about the way these either studies or professions are portrayed in different video games or the ways those video games are used to to educate people in their career journeys, or just how video games can generally help the populace, or from a psychological perspective, how we can use video games to better ourselves. So that's something that really picked up sort of around, I mean, it's, it's been before, but, but around 2012, it really started to, to gain a lot more traction over the past 10 years. It's, it's picked up and, and makes up the vast majority What's the most obscure book or topic you've got in your collection? What's the most niche? There's there's a lot. I, I get the question a lot of what's the weirdest one, but like I say, pretty much any field of study, you can find something. One that sort of stands out to me is is one called Jesus for the Win. And it's <laughs> it's sort of an not an educational book, but it's sort of like a retelling of the Bible as if it was a like a video game oh. RPG genre. And it uses a lot of references from from different video games. There's a, a book in Spanish called Ludonomicon, which is a collection of, say, the 151 of the, the strangest games that have ever been created. Hmm. But there's one game in that book that's, that's fake. 
And oh, so you sort of have to guess like, okay, which one of these is, is not real. So that's, that's sort of fun. Hmm. I really like the memoirs that are written and, and just some of the bizarre stories behind some of these, these prominent figures in the industry. One I recently read called Game Changer. It's uh, the story of Sean Fontano, who uh, stars as Franklin uh, in GTA Five, but mm. he had a really rough upbringing on the streets, and it just talks about his his transformation into um, one of gaming's most prominent voice actors from from GTA. Walk me through adding a new book to the video game library project. How do you begin to categorize it? Do you just start scanning the cover and pages? Yeah, it's it's interesting. So I, I started with my own collection. I said, mm. well, we'll start. I have about a thousand books in the collection. Surely that's got to be what 90% of the books out there. And I, I was quickly proven wrong. I'm, I'm well over 10,000 books in the list that oh, wow. I have to get out there. And it, it continues to grow. There's over 20 languages on the site right now. And the, the list just keeps growing because anytime you find a new author, a new publisher, it's another rabbit hole for you to go down. And there's constantly books coming out. So really how it works is uh, I find a, a direction I want to start going for that particular day. Maybe I pick a language or game or uh, a publisher or an author. And I, I look up and get as much information about that book as I can. I take a, an image. I usually work on the image. I edit it in a photo editing program. Uh, so that the cover is as clean and as, as high res as possible. And then I use that as sort of the cover image. I list out all of the authors or contributors. Again, in these game studies books, it's often one or two editors, but it's a series of essays from 20, 30, 40 different authors. So doing some research to make sure you're crediting everybody who's contributed to that book, writing a little bit of a blurb, and then putting in some of the book details or the publishing details around the year it was published, the number of pages, the ISBN numbers. And then I think the most important thing is adding a, a series of, of metadata to each of the records. So anytime you go into a, a book record on the video game library, if you scroll down to the bottom of that record, you'll see all of the games that that particular book mentions, all of the uh, authors or, or contributors, all of the prominent figures or, or industry figures that are mentioned or talked about or interviewed, all of the companies, and then any miscellaneous information, for example, hardware. And the reason I do that is if you're looking for a, a particular uh, book about a specific game, and even if there's only one essay in that book that really dives deep into that game, I still want it to come up in the results. So if, if you're looking at a, a book called like Masters of Doom, uh, which is a really popular uh, yes. book from many people have read it from David Kushner. Say you've read that book, but you want to learn a little bit more about John Romero. Uh, you can click on John Romero in the tags. Mm. It'll bring you to any books he's written. And now up until this month, that would have been zero. But this month, hmm. he's uh, releasing a, a book called Doom Guy, uh, Life in First Person, uh, yes. which is his autobiography. If you want to do a little more history about Doom itself, you can click on Doom as the game. And you can find a book called Scary Dark Fast, which dives into sort of the technical build of Doom. If you like uh, the audiobook, it's read by uh, Will Wheaton. So hmm. if you like his voice, you can click on his name and see all of the books related to video games that he narrates. And you can find Prepare to Meet Thy Doom. If you like the writing style, you can click on David Kushner and get all of his books. Or even like within the contents of the book itself, within Masters of Doom, John Romero talks about his, his stepfather giving him a book called Apple Graphics and Arcade Game Design. And that's what really 
led him to publish his first game, Search Scout. That book is on the site. You can click on it and, and get redirected to there. Or if you read about John Carmack, he had a book called Hackers, Heroes of the Computer Revolution, and, and that ultimately gets him sent to Juvie. That book is also at the site. So really, it's it's a way for you to sort of dive down this rabbit hole or this web of, of books and, and discover things that you didn't even know existed. I want to dive into the Japanese side of your collection. Japan has a major publishing industry and a long history with video games. So needless to say, there are thousands of books out there. What kind of trends have you noticed with Japanese video game books? So there was a, a, a lot more fiction books or in-universe mm. books written in the early years of the Famicom or of Nintendo. Uh, I find that in uh, the English-speaking world, there was a lot of books written around the electronic components and, and sometimes the history or what this new media revolution might do, a little bit about the history. But there wasn't a ton of video game fiction. Japan has this whole crazy genre of like choose your own adventure books for mm. like almost any Famicom game you can think of came with a book beyond just the strategy guides. They are novelizations or uh, like I say, just choose your own adventures that um, are, are really, really fun to find. And those in particular are what I find is uh, the least documented online or the mm. hardest to find. I, uh, I'll find, for example, I just did Contra. Uh, this morning, I added four Contra books. There were three sort of strategy slash story guides and, and one choose your own adventure. And the amount of information online that I could find is very, very limited. Not only do I not speak Japanese or, or can't read it, but I can't find any information even if I could. Mm. So it, it becomes really difficult, really challenging. And I think one of the next steps for me or one of the things I want to strive toward more is diving deeper into that pool of, of Japanese literature because it's so vast, like you say, thousands and thousands of books that are between 1983 to 1990 uh, mm. alone is just so vast. So I, I really want to make sure that that becomes really prominent in the video game library. One of the books I recently bought uh, was called Introduction to Video Game Books History, but it's a Japanese yes. book that outlines about 300 video game related books written in Japan. Again, it's all in Japanese, so I, I use a little bit of a Google Translate to, to help me out there, but it's such a valuable tool because a lot of this stuff, you, you can find like one post on, on Rakuten or eBay or something that got sold once in 1998. And, and that's the only online presence it has. So it's been really, really fun to just dive in and discover myself what what is out there. Yeah, I wanted to mention that book, The Introduction to Video Game History Book, put out by Suzume Publishing, which is a small shop in Saitama, which specializes in video game books. And so it's a video game book about video game books, which seems right up your alley. Are you just planning to go through that book and try to acquire as many of those books as possible for yourself? Yep, I've been going from from page one. <laughs> I started on page one and, and started to catalog them all into the video game library. Now, I think one thing that's that's important to, to note, and it, it's sort of a misnomer and, and understandably so, when, when we talk about the video game library, even though there's thousands and thousands of books already cataloged, that doesn't mean somebody can go there and, and just start reading all of these books. Really, the purpose mm. is for us to, to document sort of a shell or 
uh, a record that that book exists and tell you as much about it as possible. Here's the, the, the nice description, the back of book description. Here's all the games that you'll find inside. Here's all the people that are interviewed, but it doesn't let you go on to a scan and, and flip through the pages. That opens up the door to a lot of legality that even the biggest sites, archive.org, who have armies of lawyers are still working through with various governments around the world. I'm just one person and this is a hobby site. So I don't want to be bogged down in any sort of litigation where I can. I link directly to the archive.org record of, of that same book so that people can click through, get redirected to to their site to flip through the pages. But if there's anything not online already and I don't have it, I, I don't go through the trouble of, of trying to upload a copy myself. Going back to Japanese video game books a bit, I really love a lot of the 90s video game magazines because they had unique covers and they had very specific focuses, like Falcom had a magazine and there were many console-specific magazines for like the PC Engine and the Sega Saturn, etc. Do you have any favorite retro Japanese magazines in your collection? Not too many Japanese magazines. Mm. Really, the only ones I have are, there's a couple called uh, Nintendo Dreams, 3DO magazine. I'd never owned a 3DO. I don't know how I came across these magazines. <laughs> I, I have them. Uh, Famitsu, of course, a big one. Really, for me, it's it's the digital collection of magazines that I focus on just because magazines themselves are so expensive to, to buy online and, and ship to Canada. Right. Uh, I have about 33,000 issues of, of video game magazines from across the world that I've mm. collected from the various scanning sites. Of those, about 1,250, I think, different magazine runs. So I, I'm doing on a daily basis, adding more and more magazines, but those are, are sort of a separate side project that I haven't really published anywhere else. That's that's not part of the video game library. The library right now is exclusive to book literature rather than magazines, because I, I feel like there's other sites that do that very well today. What's the state of video game books now? Are we in the golden age where more and more books are coming out? Or was there a prior peak? No, we are uh, more than ever in a, a place where uh, video game books are being uh, published hmm. more and more, which is interesting, right? Because the medium itself is has been impacted by the digital age, of, of course. Right. But there's a, a very clear market for people wanting to learn a little bit more about publishers or, or developers or games or history. And so more and more book publishers are, are coming out of the woodwork. Bitmap Books, Third Editions, Boss Fight Books, Heroes de Papel. Um, all of these companies are, are just coming up in the past 10 years and, and just putting out two, three, four books a year on just feeding off of our nostalgia of, of games we loved. Uh, a lot of it is is it lives in sort of the retro sphere, anything from Atari to the NES, SNES, Sega days, but more and more of it now is is starting to bridge into sort of the sixth, seventh, eighth, and, and ninth generations. It's been really fun to see. I think every year there's three or four new big publishers that that spin up, and it's yeah, it's just been really really fun to watch. I don't know if you're familiar with a company called Limited Run Games. They've recently spun off sort of a, a side brand called Press Run Books, where they're getting into the the book sphere, the book publications themselves. There's Lost in Cult, historically have done really nice sort of thick book slash magazines. They're getting into a lot of publications as well now. So it's been really fun to see. 
Do you have any recommendations for a video game book people should read? I know this is a pretty broad question, but what would you say is a good book for people who don't typically read books about video games? Yeah, it's it's interesting. It really depends on what you're looking to get out of it. I, I can list a couple of my favorite books or the books that resonated the most with me. Of course, like I mentioned at the top, MJ Gallagher's Norse Myths that inspired Final Fantasy VII. That's about as niche as you get. You have to like Final Fantasy VII. Yes. Uh, and you have to appreciate a little bit about Norse mythology. But if you do either one of those, it is such a fascinating book that opens your eyes to an entirely different perspective of the game that that I never thought about. Probably the easiest reading are books from authors like David Kushner. They do uh, He does Masters of Doom, Jacked, The Outlaw Story of Grand Theft Auto, Prepare to Meet Thy Doom. David L. Craddock is another one. He does some some really great books, a series called Stay a While and Listen, which is uh, about the rise of, of Blizzard Entertainment and Diablo and, and Warcraft. But he also recently put out the first book in a trilogy of, of Mortal Kombat books, which is a super, super great read. I would say if you're looking to get a little more fluent in the history of video games, there's a book called Replay from Tristan Donovan, a really well-researched book that takes takes a, a snapshot globally of the video game of video game history. I find a lot of video game history books really focus on North America or okay. exclusively on Japan. Replay really takes it broad and and looks at Korea and and Europe and all the other places where video games were of course growing as well. And then I, I would say really look into some memoirs because that's I guess the truest or the best way to get a feel for what the gaming industry was at a point in time. Ask Iwata is a great one from Satoru Iwata. Disrupting the Game from Reggie Fizeme is a good one. Life is a Game from Mev Dinch, who really just revolutionized the video game market in Turkey, but worked in the UK as well for for Microsoft and a couple other companies and, and, and did a lot of games like Last Samurai. And then anything from like Boss Fight books, third editions, bitmap books, a lot of like great sort of art or coffee table books are out there as well. So it really depends on what you're looking for, but stop by the video game library, type in a a game or a creator or company you like, and you'll find a book on it. In terms of video game books, is there a golden goose you're looking for? Some book that you haven't been able to nab yet? You know what it was? It was this introduction to video game books history. This (laughs) This was the book. It was a small publication run and I was, I was communicating directly with them about when, how we could get this, this book to, to Canada. Because like you say, it's just a small little, small little shop. And I, w- I was finally able to get one. And this has opened the door to, to now 300 other rabbit holes that I can go down. So that to me was the big one that I really wanted. Outside of that, I'm, I'm discovering new books every day that I, just, I, I desperately want to add to the collection. What's an upcoming video game book that you're looking forward to? Doom Guy Life in First Person is a big one. Yes. That's John Romero's book. There's a, a new book coming out from Bitmap Books about PC Engine, and, and they do some some really great sort of console-wide coverage books. So so that's another one. Just a yeah, deep dive into the, the history and all the games for the, the PC Engine. How can people get involved and contribute to the video game library? Should we just all be mailing you books? Yeah, actually, yeah. I'll, I'll put my address and everybody can just <laughs> give me books. No, honestly, the video game library would not exist without the recommendations and, and contributions in, in terms of, of different books or different avenues to go down from, from visitors. 
daily, I get messages in my inbox saying, hey, have you heard about this author or this book? Or, hey, I just read a book for my thesis paper and I noticed it wasn't in the library. That's what I need. I need people to just share these obscure reads that they, they discovered on their, their university library or that they're writing a book and just let me know. I would love and, and maybe it's, it's, it's naive and unrealistic, but I would love the video game library to be synonymous with uh, video game literature. I would mm. like authors to want to get their books up on the site, to get more traffic, to get more visibility, to, to help spread the word. Because really what it's meant to do is be a free global resource for anybody to use. It's not monetized. There's, I don't make any money off this. It is, it is strictly a tool for anybody to use, whether you're a, a parent who knows your kid likes Fortnite and you want to figure out what books are out there so you can buy them a good Christmas present, or you're a psychologist and you want to relate to your patient with a a video game that they like, you can look up psychology books. You're an academic, you're a a construction worker, and and you're looking at how level design is similar or crosses paths with carpentry in real life. Anybody can go to this site and, and find a book that they're interested in. Everywhere I can, I have a, a buy now and it, it redirects to Amazon or the publisher page. There's there's no, I, I don't get any money off that, but I, I would encourage everybody to, if they if they want a book, go out and, and, and find it and purchase it. And, and yeah, just hopefully it becomes synonymous with, with new video game books. I, I love when I see people spreading the word or hear people say, hey, I had no idea this book existed. And if you want to help a little bit more, I'm always looking for volunteers. I really appreciate people who speak languages outside of English who are available to help translate a book title for me when Google isn't doing a good job of it. If there's any idioms or just more complex translations, that really helps. If you want to become a volunteer to build actual records on the site, always looking for help with that. But at the very least, just give me a heads up, say, hey, here's somebody writing a book. Maybe just keep an eye on this is an incredible help for me. And final question, what's a topic for a video game book you'd like to see that hasn't been made yet? Oh, that's a good question. I really, and maybe this is too repetitive, but I'm I'm so surprised that there aren't more books that cover this, that, that cover books. This this introduction to video game books history is, is Japanese. It's exclusive to Japanese written video game books. But I would love to see more guides on what's out there, either from a consolidation of, of the different magazines that have been published or comic books or graphic novels or whatever it is. There's compilations of everything else. There's books about every video game in a library. There's books about every company in a region. But there's, there's not a lot of books about every book out there. So I, I would love to see a little bit more of that selfishly. I also feel like there's a huge market for translation services. And I don't know the first thing about how that works. But in, in this journey over the past year, it's, it's been very clear that there are books written in over 20 languages natively that could really benefit from being translated into more common spoken languages or just alternative languages. It's amazing what's out there that's exclusively written in Greek or in Spanish or in Korean. And and it would be really interesting to see 
if there's an opportunity for a company to provide these sorts of services to translate these books, because there's there's so much information in there from interviews and just really deep, deep research that the rest of the world is, is sort of missing out on. Awesome. Well, I'm glad I got to chat with you about video game books. Dean, where can people find you? Sure. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at the VG Library, or you can find me at thevideogamelibrary.org. There's a little chat there as well. If you guys are looking for anything in particular that you're not seeing, feel free to use that. Uh, or just browse the site. My email's on there if you want to get a hold of me over email. But I think mostly just Twitter. Let me know uh, if I'm missing any books. If, if you have any books that you've written that you'd love to get up on the site, or if you have uh, any books you're looking for and just want suggestions, let me know. I've read a lot and, and can probably help you out. Great. And the links to everything will be in the podcast description. So check it out. Dean from the Video Game Library. Once again, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Let's take a brief ad break. Hey everyone, it's David Petrangelo, one of your hosts from Remember 64, the podcast that goes on the totally tubular journey through the Nintendo 64's library. Join us as we dive into classics from Nintendo, Rare, and into the early days of polygons and 3D worlds. Yes, we're covering it all from top of the charts down to the dingy basement and everything in between. We may even find a few hidden gems. Ooh, intriguing. Remember 64, only on the Tokyo Beat Network. That's it for the feature, and now let's look at some games. I can't lie, most of my game time is still going to Tears of the Kingdom. I haven't beaten it yet, but when I do, you'll definitely hear about it. So instead of highlighting the latest and greatest games from Nintendo... I wanted to spend this episode talking about two smaller games on the Switch that still have a very Nintendo feel to them. The first is Super UFO Fighter from Japanese developer Vivi Labo. They're a very small indie dev team that I've actually seen at some indie game events here in Japan. This is currently their one and only game, so I'm not sure what else they're working on, but after playing Super UFO Fighter, I'm definitely curious about what else they have in the future. Super UFO Fighter is a competitive claw machine battler. You control a character that can pick up things like a crane game. Think part-time UFO if you've ever played that. There is one golden object that you need to put into the goal to win, but you also need to put random items into your goal, which lowers the barrier on your goal and puts up a barrier for the enemy, making it harder for them to put things into their goal. That's basically it. That's the game. It's kind of a tug of war of sorts. There are many modes which I'll get to, but the gameplay revolves entirely around this concept of grabbing items and tossing them into your area. The characters you control do have different stats and abilities. Some are fast, some are slow, some have their traction beam at an angle, others have unique attacks. Claw machines in general really only have one base function, so it can be difficult to diversify, but every character does have at least one gimmick that makes them special. Again, the second time I've mentioned it, but this game definitely reminded me of part-time UFO in terms of the physics and controls. Objects have a weight to them, but the gameplay is still quite fast-paced, and maneuvering the character is very smooth. I can't say that if you like that game, you'll like this one, since Part-Time UFO is more of a puzzle title, while this one is a frantic action party game. But I do think there's a subset of players out there thinking, there should be more claw machine games. Matches are a bit unpredictable, since the item you need to put into your goal to win often doesn't appear until 30 seconds or so after the match has begun. The field will be covered with these gotcha capsules, 
and you need to break them to find out what's inside. Ironically, a good strategy is to just pick up an unbroken gacha capsule, put it into your goal, then break it there. On the off chance that it does have the golden item, it would just drop into your goal. The fact that you can win by tossing a singular random item into your goal that could appear anywhere, anytime, can be a bit frustrating, but I do think that it's not trying to be balanced. It's trying to be a wacky Mario Party type of game where luck might not be on your side. Matches are often best of three or best of five, so one round of bad luck won't end you. The gameplay is pretty hectic. You're always trying to grab something or mess with the opponent. There's a straight up attack button, so you can easily bully your opponent into submission if you position yourself just right. Focusing on impairing your enemy instead of grabbing as much as possible is a pretty viable strategy. Fortunately, it doesn't feel like solitaire where you're bringing items to your goal and the enemy is bringing items to their goal with little interaction. Both players are rewarded for being aggressive. The main element that stands out and what really grabbed my attention is the art style. The game is chock full of colorful, chunky 2D pixel sprites. It looks right out of the GBA era, or at least what you remember the GBA games looking like. Even the character designs resemble the super flat pop art style of the early 2000s. Super UFO Fighter definitely feels like a lost GBA game. I could see this coming out in 2001 and getting a massive cult following akin to something like Choo Choo Rocket. Super UFO Fighter does have a couple of modes. There's target battle, which is just a normal battle against the CPU or a player. Endless mode, which is what it sounds like. And yes, even a campaign, a story-driven mode where you battle against different characters with their own personalities. It reminded me of the story mode of Puyo Puyo Tetris, both in a good and bad way. It's got the lighthearted Saturday morning cartoon vibe, but also a lot of meandering dialogue that's not particularly funny. You'll definitely just be jamming A to get to the fights after a while. There's also online battles, but I couldn't really find anyone to play against the few times I tried. Another mode is the museum, which is very Katamari-esque, where you can look at different items you've grabbed along with a funny description. There's a ton of obscure Japanese items here, such as street signs and snacks. The game is certainly not afraid to show off its inspiration. I think this is an extremely well-made game with a clever idea, but if you're playing this purely as a solo gamer, there's about one or two hours of gameplay here, unless you get really into just fighting against the computer. But as a multiplayer game, it's definitely a strong entry into the Switch's already stellar list of couch multiplayer titles. Going back to the GBA aesthetic, I could totally see a friend and I loving this game as we played it through a link cable in like 2001 or so. This does look like a game that would have at least been published by Nintendo once upon a time. It's got a great art style, easy to pick up and play gameplay that anyone understands, and the menus are 100% ripped straight out of Smash Brothers, so that's always pretty cool. It's clear that the developers loved Nintendo and wanted to capture the same atmosphere, and I say they succeeded. It's $15 on Switch and Steam, and it often goes on sale. I definitely recommend it as long as you know it's likely a title that you're only going to spend a few hours with, unless you've also got a buddy that gets really into it. But either way, it's great to support these smaller Japanese developers. Another smaller Japanese title I wanted to highlight is 2019's Monkey Barrels from Goodfeel. You might know them as the developer of the yarn-based Kirby and Yoshi titles. Like Super UFO Fighter, it was on sale for about $7, so I nabbed it, having missed it upon its original release. To be honest though, I only heard about this game maybe a year or so ago. I feel like I'm typically on top of game releases, especially from developers who are Nintendo adjacent, but this one completely flew under my radar. Goodfeel also handled the publishing, which means it didn't get that big Nintendo marketing push in 2019. Guess what type of game this is? Did you guess cutesy 2D platformer? Wrong, except it is kind of cutesy. Though I think they're going for more of a cool vibe. It's a twin-stick shooter with a visual style heavily inspired by early 3D graphics, 
think PS1 character models. This is definitely a big departure from a Yoshi title, but it doesn't feel too outside of Nintendo's wheelhouse. It has clean character designs, and the gameplay is very accessible even if you're not experienced with the twin-stick shooter genre. The game chronicles the epic war between monkeys and robots. There's a Dr. Wily-esque evil doctor who sends hordes after hordes of appliance-based killing machines after you. What's a monkey to do except make guns out of soda cans and tear through them? I guess the monkey barrel's name is a play on, like, a gun barrel? Where does the game take place? A little city called Tokyo. I was totally shocked by this. I had no idea the game actually took place in Tokyo when I bought it. I purchased it solely based on the Goodfill name alone. But it's a cool surprise to see that it takes place in the city. The stages are named after real places in Tokyo, like Shinagawa and Ginza. During cutscenes, you can see some stellar art of an apocalyptic Tokyo, and you can easily spot a lot of mainstays, like book-offs and fake JR Railways logos. Inside actual levels, it doesn't really feel like you're walking the streets of Tokyo, but I always appreciate a Tokyo setting, even if it is a bit shallow. Honestly, Tokyo is a really untapped setting. We have Persona and Shin Megami Tensei, but you could do so much with the game solely set in the city. Trust me, guys, you want an open-world Tokyo game. The gameplay has a top-down perspective, and you play as a monkey named Masaru who shoots his way through levels and then fights a big screen-filling boss. You're equipped with two weapons, and each weapon has a sub-weapon. You can unlock more weapons by finding blueprints in the stages or buying them from the hub area. The weapons are a bit similar to Splatoon in that they are real things repurposed into new weapons. Like the grenades are baseballs. And one of the gun's barrels is made out of a milk tea bottle. A lot of them closely resemble real-life products here in Japan, which ties in with the Tokyo setting. As someone who lives in Japan, the overall visual design is a lot of fun. There's so many callouts and references to things every Tokyoite would come across. In terms of gameplay, ammo management and reloading are big parts of the game. If you lose track of how many bullets you're carrying around, you could easily take a few needless hits. You're always moving, always shooting, and it can be pretty hectic at times, which is typical for the genre. I'm not a veteran of twin-stick shooters or shmups in general. I like some of them, but it's one of those things where I'm like, this is fun, but I'm bad at it and I don't know how to get better. Monkey Barrels, however, is a very accessible twin-stick shooter. It definitely feels like, what if Nintendo made a twin-stick shooter? And it's kind of aimed at people who have never entered this genre before. It's not that difficult, but there is some challenge there. You can't just be careless or shoot enemies mindlessly. It might be too easy for some hardcores, but if you've only dabbled into the genre, I think this game is pretty fair. On bosses, if you die enough, you can get a temporary health boost, so the game does try to be as accessible and generous as possible. I mentioned before, but it has a very lo-fi PS1 3D look to it. I'm starting to notice a lot more games are going for this type of aesthetic. We had Frog Gun from last year, but actually this game came out first, right? A lot of people chide this era's graphics for being immediately dated, but there is certainly a charm to them if done well. I'm not sure why they went with this look, but it does help the game stand out a bit. I got through the first world, and I'm not sure if I'm going to do the rest since my gameplay is already pretty loaded, but I had fun with Monkey Barrels. Goodfield is obviously a talented developer, and it's nice to see them make a game that's not saddled to Nintendo, but it's still very much inspired by a lot of Nintendo's gameplay designs. You could easily see Nintendo publishing this game like Super UFO Fighter. It falls in line with their catalog. Goodfield's next game is the Goemon-inspired Mameda no Bakeru, coming to Switch later this year, and I'm definitely keeping my eye on it. So two smaller games for you to check out if they sounded interesting. Both often go on sale, and for a couple of bucks, they're worth a few hours of your time. It's always fun to go off the beaten path every now and then. That's it for games, now for the news. The big 
Post Direct news from Nintendo is that Mario Kart 8 Wave 5 is out now. It features a completely new track, Squeaky Clean Sprint, which takes place in a very messy bathroom. Not a disgusting one, but let's just say it's very cluttered. Any course where you're small and things are huge automatically gets a few bonus points. It's a fun track, no real crazy gimmick when you're racing, but a nice addition to the game nonetheless. Some other returning tracks, there's Daisy Cruiser from Double Dash, which I would say is one of the more iconic tracks in that game, and Koopa Cape from Wii, which is honestly one of my all-time favorite tracks. It's hard to explain why. Visually, it's not that wild, but I love the section where you fall into the pipe. They've changed it quite a bit, adding some new zero-gravity areas and overall downscaling it a bit. If you've played enough Koopa Cape on Wii, you'll definitely think, hey, this feels different, but it is a solid adaptation. For new racers, we got Kamek, Wiggler, and Piranha Pete, all characters I will never use. We have one wave left. There's no real tracks I'm dying for. A lot of my favorites have already made it into the game. But in terms of racers, we've got to get Diddy Kong in there. What's the holdup? Nintendo knows everybody wants him. Pauline would be another awesome addition, but maybe they save her for Mario Kart 9. This whole booster course pass thing has far exceeded my expectations. I'd be happy with some old tracks without zero gravity, but they've given us completely new stages, new characters, and thoughtfully remixed some classic tracks. Is this secretly some of the best DLC ever? Maybe. What's the best DLC from anyone in the past two years? Can you answer that off the top of your head? It might be Mario Kart. This next session is going to be dedicated to new old games. Taito LD Collection, a collection of three of Taito's Laserdisc arcade titles, is coming to Japan this December. It includes Time Gal, Space Battleship Yamato, and Revenge of the Ninja. These are FMV adventure titles similar to Dragon's Lair. You watch a video, then choose a path, and watch it play out. Talk about obscure. We've gotten a lot of game collections these past few years, including many titles I never thought would see the light of day again, but this might take the cake in terms of, I can't believe this is on Switch. Are these games good? Probably not. I know Time Gal has fans out there, so maybe I'm completely wrong. But these are some pretty interesting oddities and a strange part of Japanese gaming history, so I might check it out. Limited Run Games had a flurry of announcements lately, the two biggest ones, at least for me, being a remaster of the first Toomba game and the Gex trilogy. Toomba is a PS1 platformer starring a pink-haired feral child. If you were a kid in the 90s, you at least remember seeing this game as the game's vibrant art and logo really stood out. It mixes 2D sprites with 3D environments, and at the time this was a very novel idea. I said platformer, but it's a mix of a metroidvania and a big part of the gameplay is going around and talking to people, so there are some light RPG elements in there as well. It's a game that I've touched, but I've never completed, so this announcement has me excited that I can finally go back and give it another whirl. The Tuba series is one of those who owns this types of franchises. Many assume Sony had it because they did publish the game in the West, and the developer Whoopi Camp hasn't existed in possibly decades, but they are credited on this remaster. So I have no idea if Limited Run Games now owns Whoopi Camp or what, but Toomba on Switch was not on my bingo card. Those title Laserdisc games were more likely to show up, to be honest. And Gex, he's kind of a meme these days, but those games did sell back in the day. There's nostalgia for the character. Maybe ironic nostalgia, but it's there. Unlike Toomba, though, Gex is bad. At least the second game. Even as a kid, I knew, okay, this game is not as good as Mario 64. I don't know what you could do to make that game worth playing now, but the collection is out there, if you so dare. And that's all for this week. Thanks as always for listening. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite app. 
leave a five-star review as well. It really helps with visibility. The podcast is also available on YouTube, so like and subscribe there as well. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Tokyo Game Life or find the links in the podcast description. If you like the podcast, be sure to share with your friends and on social media. If there's anything you want me to talk about or cover, don't be shy. Just message me on Twitter. The next episode will be on July 30th. It will be a Pikmin-themed episode and a rare third episode in one month. See you next time. Matane. Matane.